Please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. We are now in the final stretch. We're working our way back down the mountain of this tremendous epistle. We have three uh, main runs that we're going to take. The first one is when we're going to see Christ our faith, that's in chapter 11, Christ our hope in chapter 12, and Christ our love in chapter 13. If we are going to be Christ-like followers of His, if we are going to be true Christians, if this is to be a true Christ church, then we must have these essentials of faith and hope and love built into us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the example of Christ and faithful ones that have come before us. That is certainly the intention of Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we're going to look particularly at verses 4 through 7. Last week we began a series with these words. Now faith is the assurance of what we hope for. That means what we believe. And the certainty of what we do not see. I mean, we reasonably and rationally understand things to be true, even if they have not happened yet. We can't see them. This is why the ancients or the elders were commended. We remember those who came before us. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was invisible. What was made visible. We understand that. So, last week we saw that we believe and we think and we remember and we understand. And, and all of this is in the context of understanding what it means to have assurance. Assurance is not something that you are granted because you reach a certain level of spiritual maturity or a, or a certain spiritual standard. You got far enough in your spiritual life, you've accomplished enough in your spiritual walk. Assurance instead is something that is granted to us as a gift from God. It is an assurance that demonstrates something He has already placed in us. Now you can get assurance in a few different ways, and these ways are not necessarily wrong. You can get assurance from reading Scripture. The verses like Romans 8.1 give you great confidence. It's a great assurance of pardon. That there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if all you do is read Scripture, it can actually lead some people to a false sense of assurance. They claim for themselves verses and Scriptures that don't apply to them. Some would say, well then, you ought to gain assurance from your changed life, from your personal holiness. You ought to go into the passages that tell you the way you evaluate your Christianity by certain tests. And that can be helpful to some degree, but it's relatively subjective and it can lead to legalism. I would recommend that the better way, the best way, is assurance that comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit. From the indwelling testimony of the Spirit that you belong to God and He belongs to you. That is the most powerful. It is the highest quality assurance on the market, pure and uncut. True assurance, then, is connected to the trust that you have in God, and to the faith that you put in Him. The strength of your assurance comes from the strength of the object of your assurance, not the subjective, internal evaluation of assurance. It comes from having assurance in the sovereign King of the universe, and that's something that is only available to the believer. Why do you ask? The answer is that you can't have faith until you are regenerated. 
You can't have faith until you've been given new life. Today marks the beginning of Reformation Month. I'm not sure if there is such a thing, but if there is, I just made it up. I love October. I love the Reformation. I love taking time out during this season to reread Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. I love reading the stories of what these great men did during the time when the gospel was recovered, not only from the Dark Ages, but from the Western or what became the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the core doctrines of the Reformation was that regeneration precedes faith. And for some people, the first time they understood that, it completely rocked their theological world. It, it shattered the paradigm that they had before. They had been raised up believing that in order to become a Christian, you had to do something. You had to walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, throw the pine cone in the fire. You had to repent and believe. You had to do these things. And people would walk you through a so-called sinner's prayer or ask you to do something absurd like ask Jesus into your heart. What is that? Listen, people, that's not the nature of redeeming faith. What we know from the scriptures and what was recovered in the Reformation was that salvation is a work of God when he takes that stony heart out and he gives a heart of flesh. And that pumping heart of flesh is the heart that is now alive. It's called regeneration. Now you can believe. Now you can have faith. Now you can repent. Now you can do the good deeds you were ordained to do before the foundation of the world. And if all you do is look at the external, and then you're left to believe that somehow people are perhaps faking what was going on on the inside. What mattered was the inside. What mattered was the heart. Now this is what's so important about the text of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, because the true faith that defined these men was the fact that they had been transformed already before the law of Moses, before Abraham, before the institution of any kind of organized religion, these men walked with God and they knew God and they pleased God. And it was counted to them as righteousness. And that can only come from a regenerated heart. If somebody stands before you trying to convince you that they are alive, and after a 30-minute conversation with them, you are still not convinced... If you were to reach down and take their hand and press your fingers to their wrist and feel the pulse of a beating heart, you would be assured. If you had to go that far to be assured that that was the final measure, you say, you've got a beating heart. There is a pulse inside of you. Likewise, for the Christian, we've preached sola fide, but that... Faith alone is a living faith. It's a faith that pulses. It's a faith that pumps from the heart of flesh that was given to you at regeneration. And the reformers understood that. And you had to be born again in order to activate the faith that is given to you by God in order to be redeemed. And that is the theme of Hebrews 11. This is the second sermon in a series that we've called Christ Our Faith. Last week we began with faith defined, and now we're going to look at faith described, and we're going to see that through a series of interviews done with people that span all of the redemptive history of the Old Covenant. From Abel all the way to the last prophet, just before John the Baptist came on the scene. And we're going to look at it from that theme, we're going to see that from the, the elders and the patriarchs, 
from the exiles to those who were a part of the conquest, to the judges, to the kings, to the prophets. And we'll look at the history, the arc of redemptive history. We're also going to see that many of them were defined by certain characteristics, be it their righteousness, or their wanderings, or their sufferings. There are multiple ways we can unpack all these glorious themes. But this morning, what I want to do is dig deep into the reality of these three individuals presented here and called the elders, the ancient ones, and see what we can learn from them as their assurance is put on display. You see, humans need examples. And this chapter is a carefully ordered list of individuals who exemplify assurance and ultimately faith. They walked with God, but more importantly, God walked with them. He was pleased with them. He let them know that he was pleased with them. And they, in turn, were absolutely convinced of the assurance of their salvation. They hadn't been to camp. They hadn't been through a program. They hadn't had somebody affirming them along the way. They knew what they knew because God had planted it in them. And when God plants it in you, nobody can take it away. And you're going to notice here that they are commended. They're given a good report from the Greek word for witness. God is bearing witness about them in order to help us. And it's even the word which we get the English word martyr from because so many of them, as they bore witness for Christ, died as a consequence. And so today we look at three. These ones, the ancient ones, the elders, as the writer calls them. The ones who lived in the time before the patriarchs. They inhabit the pages of Genesis 1 to 11. If you're looking at where this fits in the Old Covenant, this would have been those who spanned the time from creation to fall to flood to the dividing of the nations. Those are the first four movements in the book of Genesis. From Genesis 1 to 11, creation, fall, flood, and nations. And today we're going to see three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Three men who trusted God, judged sin, and pointed us to Christ. Looking for an outline this morning, we're going to look at that for all three of them. Three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, men who trusted God, judged sin, and pointed us to Christ. The first one is Abel. Abel was born into a small family. got that right. Thanksgiving was not a big deal. His father was a man who worked the ground, told him about what it used to be like in the garden. Of course, Abel had never been to the garden because he didn't want to challenge the angel with the flaming sword that was stopping them from getting in there. His mother was no doubt a hard worker as well. She had been responsible for plunging humans into sin. She no doubt carried a great deal of guilt for that. However, she also carried a promise from God that one of her own offspring would crush that serpent who ruined her world. And so it wasn't just his dad and mom, but he also had an older brother, and his older brother's name was Cain. And his brother was a lot like his father. He was a man of the earth. He was a man who earned his bread by the sweat of his brow. His brother was older, and in fact, when Eve gave birth to him, she said that Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, she used that name, had, had given her a man, showed some faith. 
showed some faith because he came out rather small compared to his father. You have to understand, this is the first time any child had been born. No one knew that they grew. Maybe she just thought, you know, this post-fall generation, they're just going to be a lot smaller than us. And my heavens, are they helpless. He's nothing like his father. He's gross. Look at him. She showed some faith that this child would, would grow, but more than that, she actually showed some tremendous faith in God, believing that he may in fact be the fulfillment of the promise. You see, the text would appear to indicate that she believed that he was the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, who had caused them all this pain. He was the one who fulfilled that, that promise from God. How wrong she was, this Messiah would turn out to be a murderer. You see, there was no written law back then. There was no clear plan on how to worship God except for what he had told them. And since his parents remembered what it was like to know God and what it was like to talk to him and walk with him, he was clearly made aware, Abel was, of this creator. He was taught about God, taught to respect him. If there's one thing that his parents had learned, it was that God was deadly serious when he gave an instruction. And so as the narrative here goes through, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices. We don't know when or why or what the circumstances were. We don't know specifically what God asked them to bring or if he outlined that ahead of time. There seems to be some, some difference of opinion among scholars as to whether or not God even specifically instructed them on what to bring. It's most likely that they brought what they produced, Cain being a farmer, Abel being a rancher. Cain brought grain and maybe wine. Abel brought the best parts of an animal. Later on, under the Mosaic Law, both types of sacrifices would be considered acceptable. But here, only one sacrifice is received. Only one sacrifice is accepted. Only one gets a blessing from God. And that leads me to believe that there was a particular sacrifice that was required, perhaps a sin offering, something requiring blood. But it was Abel who brought the right one, and therefore pleased the Lord. Look at verse 4 as we pick up our text for this morning. Each of these men are going to be introduced by the words, by faith. And it says this, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable, literally a greater sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, still speaks. Abel came to God in a spirit of faith. And that was credited to him as righteousness. That's the theme of the entire section that we're looking at. The righteousness of God. Abel, Enoch, Noah, righteous in the eyes of God. And each one of them stands as a stark contrast to the world around them. Abel, in a world of sin, demonstrated by not only his parents, but his wicked older brother. Enoch, in a world where he had to proclaim the coming judgment of God. Noah, in a world where the judgment of God came in his lifetime. Now, we could wish the text were clearer on what God had asked for, but it is clear that Abel pleased the Lord by his faith. It wasn't just what he brought. It was his faith. It was his faith that justified him, his faith that commended him. It was his faith that literally witnessed on his behalf that he was in fact already righteous in the eyes of God. God accepted 
the gift because Abel was welcomed. It does not say that Abel was justified by his sacrifice. He was justified because he trusted God. Abel was right with God and God was right with Abel. And Abel then is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. He was approved by God. He offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Abel himself was a sacrifice. He died at the hands of a wicked man. His blood cries out to God from the ground. In fact, his story is still told today, and therefore he still has a voice even after he died, as the author says. Now you can understand that to be the voice that he had after he died was the voice that cried for retribution from the ground. Or you can understand that as the voice that he had after he died is the voice proclaimed even to you today that the way you were made right with God is not by measure of your sacrifice, but by your faith. And that's a faith that can only be demonstrated because of a regenerated heart that he gives you. But notice this. Later the writer will tell us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. The author picks up on this very theme of Abel's blood and he says that Jesus Christ is the greater Abel. He is the fulfillment of Abel. He is the one who was also killed at the hands of ungodly men. And the difference is, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and in the resurrection demonstrated his power over sin and death and hell. And where Abel's blood still cries out for retribution, it still cries out for revenge. Jesus' blood cries out, Father, have mercy on those who have sinned. He pleads his blood as the way to bring to glory those sons and daughters who have put their faith in him. It's a greater word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for revenge. The blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness to all who trust in him for salvation. Three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, men who trusted God, judged sin, and pointed us to Christ. The second one is Enoch. Look at verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, therefore, he was taken, he was, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Now Enoch is one of the most mysterious characters in the entire book of Hebrews, and really the whole Bible for that matter. Verse 5 begins with the words, by faith, as with the others, so we know immediately that his character, like Abel, was defined by faith. In the case of this ancient man, he was spared the universal curse of death. Now at the outset, let us agree that if it pleases God to allow someone to avoid death, if it pleases God to circumvent the consequences of the curse in the case of an individual and ordain that they not see death, and that falls well within the range of his prerogatives and his power, and he has the right to do that. The text says that one day God simply took him. He was out there, and then he wasn't. And that's it. And that's why no one could find him when they went looking for him. One day he's there, the next day he's gone. Where's Enoch? I don't know. Where's dad? I don't know. 
a wife suddenly missing her husband, community suddenly missing a man of significance. How they learned, we don't know, but God revealed, at least by the time of the writer, the Hebrews, that he had been taken away. And we know that Moses declares the same thing, so God revealed this. The man walked with God, and then he was no more. And so this man spared the universal curse of death, but notice the condition that he was in before being taken. Verse 5 says, Now therefore he was taken, or before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. It's fascinating, isn't it? Remember the context here. The world is not a good place for the upright. In just a few hundred years, the Lord would flood it out and destroy everyone. It was in that context that God commends a man for his righteousness. He bore witness to it. He pleased God. This is another way of saying that he was justified in the eyes of God. Here is somebody who in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation was declared righteous by God and at the age of 365 was taken out before he was seen death. You and I wonder what it's like to live in this increasingly wicked world and having to do so for 60, 70, 80 years if we're strong. Imagine what it was like to have to live in a world like that for hundreds of years. We forget sometimes that the books of Moses are recording actual historical realities and these individuals, many of them before the flood, lived to be several hundred years old. It's not uncommon to see somebody over 800 or 900 years old walking on that earth where all people did was wickedness all of the time. The corrupting influence must have been almost impossible to resist for people. But here, Enoch, in the face of it all, lived an upright and righteous life. That didn't come as a consequence of his own strength. It came as a consequence of God doing the work inside. So what we know for sure is that Enoch believed what God said about himself. He, he believed that he was the creator. He obeyed him in everything that was required of him in terms of the moral law. He offered the atoning sacrifice that he understood in those days, and he acted on the basis of the revelation that he had. Now let me remind you from another text of Scripture, Genesis chapter 5, 21 to 24, we know this. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Now Methuselah, as you know, lived longer than anybody else. But Enoch walked with God. The Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures translates this, pleased God. But he walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Enoch were 365, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Notice, brothers and sisters, that he repeatedly says that he walked with God. Walking is a metaphor in Scripture. Uh, walking is a, a way of describing your, your life. It describes what it's like for two people to, to go side by side. And in this case, they are, they are walking together. They have fellowship. They have union. They have communication. It can't happen unless you have been reconciled with God. It can't happen unless you have faith. It can't happen unless you've been justified. The, the closeness, the relationship, the reconciliation. But there's more, because just like Abel, he cried.
cried out against the ungodliness in his age. You see, um, Enoch was a preacher of sorts. Enoch proclaimed truth. Enoch proclaimed the judgment of God upon a wicked generation. We know that because Jude, the second to the last letter in the New Testament, refers to him in verses 14 and 15, where it says this, it was also about these, the apostates that are in the context of Jude, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, here's the, here's the sermon from Enoch. Here, here's what he did to confront the sin of his age. Quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you spot the theme here? He comes to bring judgment against the ungodly people doing ungodly things in an ungodly way in an ungodly age. That was the nature of his judgment, the nature of his preaching and his revelation. It isn't astonishing that all the way back there, recorded in Genesis 5, he is talking about the second coming of Christ when he will bring the judgment upon the living and the dead. He was a prophet and a preacher way ahead of his time. The ungodly will perish under the judgment of the Son of Righteousness when he returns in glory. Enoch was preaching about the second coming before the first one happened. Three men, Abel, Enoch, Noah, men who trusted God, judged sin, and pointed us to Christ. The third one is Noah. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household, and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now here's a man we know well. Here's a man that we have a lot of familiarity with. Growing up, you probably heard stories about Abel, maybe about Enoch, only because he had such a spectacular departure from the earth. But everybody grew up knowing about Noah. They all got those flannel draft stories in Sunday school. They all were told the stories of him building this massive floating vessel. They were all told about the clean and unclean animals that were brought into the ark before unclean and clean animals were even differentiated by the law of Moses. They were all taught about this worldwide flood that decimated every living person and animal and completely reconfigured the face of planet Earth. But what we forget sometimes is that this Noah was not just a character and a tremendous story. He was an actual person. And he was a person who, who lived in a relationship towards God that was defined again by faith. And here, the faith, the regeneration manifest inside of him caused him to be the one who took God at his word and did some very extraordinary things. He was warned by God that soon he would destroy the world on account of the wickedness of the people around him. The Noah narrative here comes to us in Genesis chapter 6 through 10. Remember I told you earlier, this really follows Genesis, 6, or Genesis 1 to 11. You had Abel in the first three chapters, four chapters. Then Enoch in chapter 5, and now Noah chapter 6 through 10, all of that leading up to chapter 11 when these nations are divided and from 
then a patriarch will be chosen. But here, the Noah narrative comes to us, reflecting what's in Genesis 6 through 10. And the fact is, the world is a very wicked place. In fact, it's, it's wicked beyond description. We live in a very wicked world. We know that. We live in a dark age. But if you allow yourself to believe that somehow this world is more wicked than it's been in the past, you delude and deceive yourself. In fact, likely the world was even a wickeder place when Noah was around. Noah was among the very few that had kept themselves from it all. And in reverent fear, it says, and by the way, that's a proper fear of God. We know that genuine love drives out fear, but a genuine understanding of God brings a proper fear. God is God, and we are not. Every indication we have is that when a person came close to the glory of God, they fell down in abject terror in front of him, most of whom believed they were literally disintegrating in the holiness of his presence, especially compared to the wickedness that they knew was evidenced in their own nature. I mean, people fell down as dead in front of the arrival of angels, how much more so in the presence of a holy God. And so here, Noah demonstrates a proper fear of God, and in response and his obedience, he builds an ark. Why? It's not because arks were what you built when the floodwaters rose in those days. There had been no floods, there had been no heavy rains, certainly had been no arks. There were no blueprints. There was no large boat to compare it to. He was building a big wooden box. And he covered it with tar so that it would float. And he spent a very long time building it to the constant mockery of the people around him. And all the while preaching and proclaiming the reality that judgment was coming. And this is the nature of Noah's life. The reality is this remnant would be preserved. Why? Because in that ark, no one brings me. Now sometimes the faithfulness of one person spills over into the blessings of an entire family, but here it's a very specific reason why, and that is because from this one family would come a restart of the entire human race. A household, a lineage, a line, and beloved, notice that it would be from that line of Noah that ultimately the Savior would come. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. God's patience was demonstrated. In all the years of the building of the ark, while he continued to preach against the, the sins of the wicked ones who were there, and God, in his mercy, allowed that this family would be taken together, eight of them, preserved, even through the water. It was during that time that Noah was judging the ungodly. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says. He was condemned. He condemned it by, by building this lifeboat for himself and leaving the rest to perish in their sin. In so doing, he became, according to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, a herald of righteousness, proving his absolute assurance and confidence in God. He had faith, he challenged sin, he became a proclaimer of the gospel, a proclaimer of the righteousness of God. He went against the culture and the wisdom of the age to receive the righteousness that comes from faith. 
Righteous Abel was killed for his faith, but trusted God, even though death held him. Enoch walked in fellowship with God, proclaiming judgment on those who had no faith in him. Noah did the same. It was the, the pattern of the life of these individuals. Notice that they're both mentioned in the genealogies of Christ, both Enoch and Noah. You can find their names together in Luke chapter 3, for example. They are ancestors of Christ. It was from this line that Christ came. The greater Abel, the greater Enoch, the greater Noah also died but rose again to conquer death. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 3, 21 and 22, and this is where he ties it all together, so listen carefully to this. It is so very important. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. Baptism, or immersion, which corresponds to this. What's the this? This is the illustration of the ark. Immersion, which corresponds to this. I think going into the ark now saves you. And to be clear, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning that baptism itself does not save you. Baptism does not result in regeneration. Now, the Reformers fought against that very doctrine. That is why we celebrate communion and not a Mass. Because there is no redemption in baptism. There is nothing that takes care of the issue of your sin. But he says here that the rescue, the correspondence to the ark, is that baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's immersion into Him. You're put into Christ. You know, the Scriptures say that you are in Christ and He is in you. And if you are in Christ, it's an illustration. Christ is like the ark. You're in Him. And when the furious wrath of God falls upon the substitute, it batters it. It crushes it. It drowns it. But those who are inside are preserved. Those who are inside the ark are preserved, though the ark bore the wrath of God, and those who are inside Christ are ultimately preserved because they are made new in Him, and He bears the penalty of their sin. And so through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're back in 1 Peter 3.21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. You see, that's the end of the story. The resurrection, which leads to the ascension, which leads to the fact that we now say that He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling in glory over the angels, the authorities, the principalities and powers. Today we sing of the King in all His beauty. He awaits only for that day when all of His enemies once and for all are put under His feet. And that day is coming. The royal splendor of the reigning Son. Is that how you see Him today? Do you see Him today as the reigning, ruling, glorious, beautiful King of the universe? If you do, he will be an object of your assurance. He will be the anchor for your soul. He will be the one who gives you the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to say, even as Job did, another one of the ancients, 
Though he slay me, still will I trust him. The object of your assurance, just as he was for Abel and for Enoch and for Noah. May the Lord grant his children the grace to believe, to understand, and to obey his word for our good and for his glory. And all his people said, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this revealed truth given us today in the lives and examples of these three men. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts now to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the very testimony to your saving work that you left with us as a reminder, I ask that you would even now be preparing us to receive that with thanksgiving. May the examination that we do today be an examination to see Christ in us. May that be the test. Guard each one today from the illusion that they could ever be worthy of salvation, but instead they receive this reminder of the fact that you were worthy and did it for those who were not worthy. Father, we pray as well that as we welcome back the children into our service now to witness this, that it would be an opportunity for us to engage in spiritual, profitable, gospel-centered dialogue with them later today about the importance of what they've witnessed. May this all be done for your glory and honor, for the good of your precious church, who you lay down your life for. In your name we pray. Amen.